Hi, welcome back. This is Carrie. And I'm Summer, and we are Hypoxia Podcast, and we are back today with For Honest History with Leo, our favorite historian. Welcome back to Honest History on the Hypoxia Podcast, and today we are continuing our conversation with Leo about Black History Month. If you missed the last episode, please go back and listen. There was a lot of great information, and we'll just be picking up where we left off. I think that there's a, I think there's a fine line between, you know, having everything be doom and gloom and also being able to have a little bit of fun and learning all that stuff. But uh, if you walk out of uh, an American history class feeling better about yourself because of what you've learned and how it makes you feel, then uh, your teaching that curriculum probably didn't do it right. Yeah. Every time I would leave like a history class, like up until like college, I, when I had like history professors that actually like tried to dive deep like you do, probably not as good as you do. <laughs> They're not, they weren't as good as explaining to me first. Like, I never felt like I actually learned anything in those classes. And like, I don't know if it was necessarily like the teacher's problem, which I guess it could have been because you teach vastly more things than they did. But I never learned anything. And it was also very like neat and like organized and like nothing was like messy about it. And history is messy and unorganized and fluttered and like it's not very sanitized yeah and at like never understood like how to like phrase it really because it didn't make sense because like that's how it was supposed to be like this is what happened what right like no <laughs> definitely not what happened so when you were in school were you taught about the tulsa massacre at all nope. Because you would see, you would think nope. in Oklahoma, since it happened in Oklahoma, that we would at least hear about it, right? I didn't know ours about it. Was college. One, ours, it was in our textbook. That was the only reason, because, uh, you know, there was and, um, pictures, always, photos have always caught my attention. So anything, you know, the little sidebars that would have with a picture and a little description, those, I would read those because the pictures kept my attention. So it was the, it was a little box on the side. And so somebody asked about it and our teacher, mind you, this teacher um, likes to keep like copies of Mein Kampf on his bookshelf behind his desk, um, if that tells you anything about his teaching philosophy um, or philosopher life. Um, his explanation about the Tulsa massacre was that they, that's the word he used, they were upset because the police had arrested some criminals um, and basically destroyed their own neighborhood. And that the military only got involved to stop them from making it worse. Because that makes sense. Why would people destroy their whole entire, like, basically miniature city inside of a city like why That's right yes and the government <laughs> bombed them to stop them from burning it down because that makes sense that's totally how you stop people from burning things down you bomb that i mean but that's what america's yeah. always done i mean it, right? it, even when you say that everything. like I remember that like old 1960s, I guess, like protest sign where it's like a white guy or a white woman holding up and it says something like um, bombing for peace is the same thing as like effing for virginity. 
Like it, it's it's all that just ridiculousness. I mean, it also brings me back to like the Vietnam War, where like uh, a war general um, said something to the effect of, you know, we bombed that city um, in order to save it. It's like, how does that any of that make sense? But they put it like, but Carrie, to to your point, like they put it in, they try to put it in these tight little boxes and in, in bows for us to make it all organized to make sure that you don't ask those questions. Because when you start asking those questions, like, well, why would they do that? And what exactly happened? They don't really have the answers for it. And the answers, if they do have them, they don't want to give them because it begins to show this country for what exactly it, it truly is, which is deeply problematic and deeply flawed. Um, and at the end of the day, it is unfortunately, you know, that the country that we have, and we have the ability to do something about that, except, you know, everything that we should learn that could make this a better place to live, you know, falls under the guise of, you know, CRT and making white folks feel uncomfortable, which is unfortunate. Because again, those white folks are some of those adults that just don't want their kids to learn anything. But from all of my, you know, teachings and, and, and my decades doing this, like when I teach it, you know, white kids are okay. And if anything, they're they're pissed off that they've been lied to and, and have things kind of hidden from them. They don't, they don't walk out crying and they don't walk out feeling bad and they walk out feeling sad sometimes and some days are tougher than others but i try to tell them honestly like that's your empathy showing that's not your guilt that's empathy and that's a good thing to have when it comes to history you said to a lot of the kids at the hospital that i work with because a lot of them are the entitled white kids <laughs> um i think last year when it was when black started we started showing them like videos of different like historical topics um and we started teaching or a lot of our, like black male staff started teaching them about like race race riots wars i don't know the correct terminology for that i'm so sorry but like we started teaching about all of that and like um the child that had been murdered when he was like 14 I'm so terrible at names. Could George Stinney Jr. Yes. We showed, like, videos about that were, like, animated videos about all of that and, like, started trying to, like, teach them. And it was the hardest, like, month, I think, for them. And because they didn't understand. And a lot of them, like, really thanked, like, the staff that we had because, like, nobody had ever taught them. And, like, that's, like, my only like point of contact I guess with like those kids like I'm not a teacher or anything so like teaching them where I'm at and like what I know and giving them resources to people that do know a lot more than I do I think is really helpful and teaching them like that basic empathy that I think a lot of people are missing and, and I think it's helpful for them too to, to learn from you know both teachers and non-teachers alike I mean like you said earlier I mean history is going to be messy and it should be and so like none of us are walking into this as the foremost expert on anything. We're all learning every day. Like there's still shit that I got to learn too. And uh, the one thing that I'm glad that like education and learning has done for me is it's allowed me to realize that the more that I learn makes me understand and realize the more that I need, that I still need to learn and still need to grow. Um, and so I'm able to take that into the classroom with me every day as well. Um, and whether you're an educator or not, like you said, the ability to do that. And so every time we have an opportunity to affect change and to you know, get in front of kids and to give them a bit of education and just kind of pass on some of the knowledge that we have, like we should, we should take that opportunity to do so. You don't need a degree, you don't need a credential, you don't need an official title in order to teach and to learn. Um, it should be happening all around us. I mean, it's, 
it goes back to like the old African proverb with the fact that like it takes a village and that village can't just be made up of teachers, it has to be made up of other folks too that have different experiences as well. Funnily enough, I was talking about TikTok earlier. <laughs> I follow a lot of like uh, black and POC creators on there, specifically like activists and stuff. But um, there was this woman that I follow, her and her father, they're from Africa. She didn't say like what country, so I can't like accurately say where. But they were talking about, or like when you talked about earlier, like Black Joy, they post like tons of like activism videos, but just as many videos of them doing like traditional dances and talking about like proverbs and like the meaning behind them. And like, I like to share those to people because they make me happy. <laughs> I like, it just, TikTok is obviously like wild or ridiculous, but I think there's a lot of like content on there too. <laughs> I learned a lot on that. <laughs> I'm an old, so I don't know anything about TikTok other than Carrie sends me videos. I'm like, I send so many videos. There's so much good content on there. And like, I've learned so much from like a lot of black creators. I talked about um, one of my favorite creators in a video we haven't posted yet. Uh, her name's Caitlin Easley. And she does like so much like activism on there and just like, making silly videos and talking about like the struggles of being like a young black woman and like she's one of my most favorite people in the whole world <laughs> so have you ever noticed how we get labeled activists for advocating for our people but when white people do it they're just people Does anyone not, else notice this not, most of the people i know i'm just it, just it just made me think about all of the um all of the time, like all these journalists, they'll label me an activist and stuff, and I'm like, I'm literally just saying, like, I'm literally just talking about, you know, what we, you know, our about the needs of our community. And when white people do that, it's not labeled the same way. So it's interesting. I guess it's just because they're considered the default. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we get all the so other. Right. Words. So it's some sort of special request that we're making to be treated like people. Yeah. So we're the activists, we're radicals, we're super progressive, like no, we're just trying to be humans the same way that, you know, white folks have that opportunity to be. Um, but but that's a part of it. I mean, that's a part of othering and they, it happens all the time. And that's exactly the reason why they do it. Never thought about that. And I feel like I need to change my language now. I just, I've always, like... It's okay. And there's a lot of people who use that, that title for themselves. I just, I've just always wondered why I'm an activist or an advocate. Because I use the word advocate. Because activist has yeah. been turned into a negative term. Um, but even at that, like, how is, you know, asking for minimum standard of humanity <laughs> towards our, you know, towards our communities... Yeah, it, it shouldn't even rise to the level of advocacy. It's just like basic humanity. But we get, I guess it's like treating it like it's some sort of extraordinary request. But, hmm, I don't know, I'm going to have to think about that some more. But okay. now, you know, Mar uh, <laughs> you know, my kids go to a virtual, they're on a virtual school and on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday it was a you know their social studies lesson was basically two videos about him which okay i'm not i'm not a teacher but i, I do question how effective that is to just say watch two videos but okay 
But um, so, you know, there's online like Facebook groups for, you know, parents from this from the school. And this woman went on this whole rant about her kid having to watch these videos about the reverends. And she's like, I send them there to learn um, about history, not about this. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I guess Martin Luther King Jr. is not not history, and on top of that, for a lot of folks that are in the the quote unquote Bible Belt or religious, like he, like you said, he was a reverend too. Like that's where right. he that's where he got his start, his calling from in the first place. But yeah, go off. And and a, and a good portion of his of of his a good portion of the things he said, he rooted in scripture. Whether it's his writings or his speeches, you know, a good portion of it, he rooted in scripture. It's just like. But apparently that's not relevant to them either. Um, but yeah, I, I found that. It's religious that they say it's religious. It's only if it's their flavor of the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And don't, and don't yell at me about using that joke. I know people are on a tear about that. You know, shouldn't be so flippant about it. But when you've survived a cult, you can make that joke, damn it. Um, <laughs> I'm reclaiming that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, do you hear that commonly? Like the idea that, I don't even know really how you separate that. Like, I, like as infuriating as it is that our histories start, you know, at contact, you know, at invasion or, you know, with the slave trade, right? As far as American history goes, I can at least get where they get that line of demarcation, right? Because it's really, you know, this narcissistic approach about it's all about us and we're wonderful, right? But exactly how do you separate out something like the civil rights movement, which was a very important, you know, watershed moment in, in American history. How do you separate that out from American history? That's maddening to me. Especially like his children are still alive and very like active on like social media and like speak out constantly about like every, like his actually like his children, not like grandchildren, like his children. So it was not that long ago and people still mm -hmm. it's so it happened so many decades, like no. Yeah, I no. follow a couple of his children on Twitter. Same. Like, I see their stuff all the time. Ago. <laughs> I mean, he would be 93, which still would have put him six years younger than Betty White. Yeah. Like, people are wild to me. Like, the mental gymnastics that they can go through to, like, justify their loosely held beliefs about things. Man. Yeah. If, if, they, if they fought as hard to, to keep all that bullshit history as they could to fight to uh get all the history out there and known i mean things wouldn't be that bad for all of us i mean learning about black history learning about indigenous folks like that 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 low tide like it literally lifts all boats including that white boat as, as well um and i and i have to i have to say it over and over again but like you know whiteness messes up white folks too just like paternalism and masculinity messes up men and it leaves us totally unprepared and ill-equipped to handle these conversations or to grow and progress in ways that are meaningful and helpful not just to you know those marginalized groups but to the other groups as well and uh we keep missing that boat every single day and uh i know that there's a lot of great educators out there that are doing a lot of tremendous work 
and a lot of great you know organizations that are out there doing what they can in order to bring the sort of education to the masses and yet until they're being fought you know every inch of the way by groups of people that aren't you know as educated who don't have the same goodwill um to want to educate folks as as they do and it's you know it's it's frustrating to, to constantly see that it's frustrating to see people that don't care to be educated um get to stand up in front of school boards and shout and scream um and take off masks and do all that other stuff but i mean the one thing that that this pandemic has really done i think hopefully to a lot of white folks is expose you know how problematic this country has been in a lot of different ways whether it is as simple as testing um wearing masks getting vaccinated um it shows in a lot of ways like how uneducated we are um, and there's really no excuse for it because we do have, you know, the means to be as educated as we want to be. And yet, and still, um, people out there actively fighting every day to make sure that we stay, you know, in the dark. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's maddening. It's a bit concerning to me the, how large that contingency, contingency of anti, not just anti-science, but anti-intellectualism that's happening right now. It's that wave is a lot bigger than I previously had realized it was. Yeah. To the point, I'm not sure there's much hope, honestly. <laughs> um, because it seems like it's getting worse. It seems like there's a lot of people who were kind of apathetic before that are now ready, you know, ready to have their pitchforks and torches to. And I, do, I don't know why that is. I don't know what's galvanized them in that direction. Uh, during the pandemic, you know, you never really know what is the catalyst for specific people. But I mean, overall, even though, you know, whiteness does hurt white people too, it seems like they're just so many are just so concerned about losing their position in the power structure. You know, they, mm -hmm. do, they aren't willing to give up the advantages that they have for even basic humanity of others. And I, I think a lot of that is rooted in that empathy gap. What I don't know is how you fix that. Well, I mean, I do know you have to, you have to teach, you have to fix that in the younger generation. You can't fix that in a full grown adult, which is why there, we have the battles of the curriculum mm -hmm. because they're not willing to let that change. I work with like such a small like population of kids, but I'm so glad that I, I can start teaching them that empathy. And like, I know like you as a teacher, Leo, like you can do that too. And I like... I think that even just taking like small steps and working with like small groups is going to be good because they'll start spreading it out everywhere and start like migrating empathy around. <laughs> like, I think like. Well, and not to be some way here, but the majority, my understanding is the majority of your students are white, right, Leo? Yes. Which is the data shows is where that empathy gap is. So I think that makes it even the, the work you do even more important because you and, and Carrie, like you said, most of your clients are privileged white kids because that's who, you know, 
has accessibility to that type of services. Um, and yes, that I mean that is the that is where we need to be targeting because that's where that empathy gap is. I mean, we see the studies that show that white people, like you know, they'll do the brain scans and literally don't empathize with people of color any more than they do inanimate objects. Mm -hmm but they will empathize with other white people. Yeah, it, it's, it's based in their identity and it's also based in, you know, the, the mythology of black and brown folks and what they constantly get. I mean, racism is working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and I know even a couple of weeks ago, we ended up having a bit of a conversation that led in a lot of different ways from um, evolution. And we ended up talking about, um, you know, the myth of, of black folks. And, and I even had to show them a couple of articles that show that like, even medical students today really believe that black folks don't feel them as much pain as white folks do. Mm -hmm. So therefore we end up getting like under medicated even when we have the same type of issues as, as white people do. And for, and for my students, like, I'm glad that they look at that and say, what the hell? Like, what the fuck is that? Because like that shows that, that they are capable of, of change. They, that shows that they are capable of empathy. It shows that they're capable of seeing folks as, you know, equal and the idea that like, they should see color. I need them to see my blackness. I need them to see, you know, a student next to there. I need them to see their brownness. I need them to see their culture and their heritage because that part is important. It does shape the ways in which we live and the experiences that we've had. And at the same time, they should know that there is an ability for them to so treat us all in a lot of ways the same. Um, but yeah, but like it's it's that empathy piece that's missing, but it comes from a lot of lack of education, a lot of just, you know, bad scholarship and bad mythology. And it comes from all of that, whether we're talking about, you know, standardized testing and IQ testing, or whether we're talking about, you know, racism medical field. I mean, it's it's pervasive and it happens everywhere. And they're getting all this kind of coded language and, um, you know, words and terminology all the time. And it's, you know, it's exhausting to try to combat that. And at the same time, like, I know that I have to, and I know that for them, I have to, to do that with them and that it can be tiring. Um, but I know that if I don't, you know, chances are they may not. Um, they may not find the next person that's willing to go at this with them. Um, when they do get tired of, of hearing about it, they do need, you know, a bit of a pick me up because I mean, this shit is intense. Um, and there's gotta be room for them to, to learn about these intense topics and also have some room for, for fun and joy and, and camaraderie and community. Um, and doing all that ain't easy, but it's, it's really rewarding. And so when I think about you know, my place in all this and, and the work that, that I can get done. I mean, I'm not always the first guy out there with the picket sign and, and out there at markets. Like I, I had my fill of doing that as, as a youngster. And now when I go out there and do it, it's really as a way to, uh, to show young folks how to do it and what to look out for. Um, but now I get to do that in a classroom every day. And, and hopefully it's, uh, I mean, we have to use the terms, you know, activism and radicalizing, but hopefully it is a form of, of radicalizing, you know, a lot of these primarily white kids. And even some of my like, privilege, you know, black and brown students as well. And let them know that like, y'all aren't exceptional. Like a part of where you are today because of where your parents or where your home adults are is based off of luck. And that luck is just because, you know, they can't keep all of us out. And so some of us get in based off of whatever we've done and how lucky we've been, but that doesn't mean that you're any better than, you know, the black person that didn't make it or the scores of brown folks that didn't make it. You just happen to get lucky. Just like I'm lucky to be in a position that I'm in now where I make a decent amount of money and I work at a school that allows me to teach the way that I would like to. Um, but it's also luck. It could have happened 10,000 other ways. And I think the faster, you know, black and brown folks recognize that, you know, even more progress can be made because there's still a lot of black and black and brown folks that subscribe to whiteness 
and subscribe to their own exceptionalism. And that part doesn't help us either because those are the folks that ended up being like put in front of our faces that say, you know what, well, if they can make it, then there's no excuse for you to make it. You know, racism doesn't exist or sexism doesn't exist. Um, and it's important to have, you know, the language and, you know, the intelligence and the education around it in order to fight it because um, it's what's needed. And so I, a lot of me teaching history is me trying to help kids, you know, um, fight those stereotypes, fight the bad history, fight the comments that I know that they're going to get as they stand out there and they're bold in their, in their solidarity. Um, and a part of me teaches them like how to respond when people come up with these questions or make these comments. Um, and so in that way, um, I hopefully I'm teaching them how to weaponize history and, you know, education for good. Do you ever have any parents that object to what you teach in the classroom? Um, not in like the last four years or so, but the first couple of years that I was at my new school, um, I would get, you know, a couple of the questions during back to school nights. I'd get some of those questions in emails. I know that my administration did. And, uh, you know, the easiest way that I could explain it to them was, you know, what, I, what I'm teaching them is history. And what I'm teaching them is to, you know, help out others. Um, and what I'm teaching them is, is to, uh, to really practice the idea of being what a, of what a good human is. And I'd have to tell the, the, the parents and tell them from the beginning that, you know, this, this course is not meant to be um, hurtful for kids. And it's not meant to make your kid go home and feel bad. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why when I give out a lot of my assignments, like I like for them to go home and talk to their parents about these things or their home adults. So then that way their parents already know what is going on in class. Um, and there's been a couple of times I've had to just flat out ask parents um, when they've had questions or they've wanted to make comments, I tell them to, to ask their kids, ask their kids how they feel about this, ask their kids how they feel about learning about 9-11 and ramifications of what we've done in the Middle East. Ask them to, uh, to tell you about, you know, what we're learning about black and brown folks and indigenous folks and, and, and the ways in which we're trying to get that done and ask them, you know, how it makes them feel. Um, in the times that they've, that I've had to do that, they've done it. Um, and to those kids' credits, they've responded and told their parents, you know, that they feel good and that they're happy to be learning this stuff because, you know, it's the first time they've ever learned it and they've questioned them why they didn't learn it before. Um, and I think once they, the kids get involved and say, hey, look, you know, I'm okay and I'm safe and this is, you know, relatively, this is fun and he makes this a, an enjoyable environment to, to get this stuff done, you know, that's when the questions stop. And uh, now that I've kind of, I think this is my sixth year at my school now, um, now my reputation kind of precedes me and, you know, students and, and families come to my middle school in part because of what I teach and they want them to get that education. Um, and they also know what it's about now too. So when you sign on, uh, when you sign that contract on a dotted line, like, you know what you're going to get. And, uh, you're going to get somebody who wants to teach history in a way that is authentic and, and wholesome and empowering. Um, and also teach somebody who's going to be unapologetically me and, I've got my way of doing things and it may not always be 100% right, but it's not going to come from lack of effort and it's not going to come from, you know, lack of preparation. Um, and your kids are going to learn something when they walk out of here. And it's not just learning just to have information in your brain, but hopefully it's learning to make you and make your world and make your community, make your family better for it. Do you have like a special like topic, like a topic of interest that you really, really enjoy teaching like about black history and like the parts of American history, like related? Um, I mean, I, I think the part that I, I guess using the word enjoy the most would be like reconstruction, um, like that, that period right after civil war, 
And I think I like teaching that part the most. And, and it's also hard, it's a gift and a curse. Um, it's because like for that, for those couple of years in between, um, there was a really good opportunity to make meaningful progress. And, uh, you know, America, you know, willingly dropped the ball on that. But at that point in time, you know, black folks were starting to, to own land. We were able to get into schools and get an education. There were black folks that were getting into politics. Um, the black folks were free. <laughs> um, and we had an opportunity there to make a lot of meaningful progress and headway. And uh, again, it's one of the many times that, you know, America willingly just turned a blind eye and dropped the ball and wanted things to go back to where they were. But I think in teaching that part to students, like it really does kind of show them the ability of, of you know, what progress can look like. So that way, as they get older and begin to hopefully make their way out in the world, that they can have an idea um, as to, you know, what it looks like and, and the possibilities of it. Um, the other part that I enjoy teaching a bit is, you know, colonial America and talking about like the origins of enslavement and, and the, uh, the, the, the perpetuity of enslavement and how a lot of that started off um, with black and, and, and indigenous and poor white folks coming together. It was class solidarity. And, uh, you know, rich white folks decided to create these ideas of race in order to get, you know, their poor white folks to, to join inside with them. So uh, that ended up being the difference between like indentured servitude and chattel enslavement. Um, and talking about like the, the very first case in, in Virginia, which I believe was 1640 with John Punch. And um, he and a couple of other, you know, indentured servants who were poor and white decided to, to run off. And when they got captured, um, the, the couple of poor white folks that he was with ended up being sentenced to a couple of years longer for their servitude. And John Punch, who was a black man, ended up being sentenced to, you know, servitude and perpetuity. And that was really the first kind of codified idea of enslavement being forever. Um, but once kids start to learn about that part of it, like that part again, I guess using the word fun is, is probably not the right word, but it is empowering um, because it does show that like the history of this country wasn't always, you know, black folks against white folks, that there was a lot of class solidarity to be had and, and there was progress that was made. And then it was, you know, co-opted and, and shoot away and destroyed and we are where we are now but there were these glimpses of hope there and those are the glimpses that i like to try to show them i think i probably phrased my question wrong but i'm glad you understood what i meant <laughs> <laughs> it, i'm finding that a lot of people don't understand most of what you just said like they don't understand where racialization came from, at what point in history, the whole idea of of class solidarity, class warfare, foreign concepts entirely. And, you know, when I think back um, to my primary education, I don't think any of that was mentioned. I, I know there was, um, some some mention of you know eugenics and the you know quote unquote scientific um, differences between races, but I don't even recall that being framed as it's not a real thing. Um, I think we were really kind of left with the impression that there are inherent differences between races. And which seems just bizarre to me as I say that, because I haven't really thought about that in a long time, but I do think we were just kind of left with that. 
Um, and no, no mention at all of the classification. So you're kind of left with the idea of, okay, so, you know, America was entitled to indigenous lands because we were less than, and, you know, then <laughs> they enslaved these people uh, here, you know, they enslaved black people so because they believed they were less than, and then, oh, look, there was some science that says there's differences, and it's just kind of left there. Yeah, the the uh, the unsaid part is really implied all throughout history, and again, I can't think that that's on accident. They're they're not going to no, say all those be. other parts, no. But they they let all the the blank spaces in between kind of fill up with you know people's minds of empowerment and of dominance and of you know racial disparities. And again, like I mean, it all is pure eugenics, um, and that's stuff that I try to teach as well. And when we look at the eugenics movement. I literally have them type it in and and do their research and see what they notice. And a lot of what they notice is the fact that like the people that were these popular eugenicists were were white folks. You didn't see indigenous folks that were subscribing to eugenics. You didn't see black scientists that were subscribing to any of this stuff either. Um, and that's not on that's not on accident either. And it also happens in the period right after enslavement, as we're getting into Jim Crow law and it's happening. And and one thing that I have to basically tell my students that anything that happens from like 1890 to 1940, you can just go ahead and chalk that up to eugenics. Cause that's where you see the sort of, you know, racialization of America and of this idea of, of other than. Um, and this is also where we get into, you know, bad scholarship of, you know, history just really totally being erased. Um, it never fails that when I get on some of my rants on Twitter or something like that, and I post some of my, the stuff that I do that, I get some DM from some random account that talks about, you know, black folks should be lucky that they came to America, that you're in safer because there's nothing in Africa for you anyways. Y'all were running around in loincloths, wearing, uh, uh, throwing spears at lions and, and stuff like that. There is nothing there but but dust and grass huts. Um, Holy yeah. like these beautiful cities and like it, Alexandria. Like, right. There weren't full blown, there weren't full blown civilizations out there at all. Absolutely not. <laughs> And and we get told the same thing. They're like, "Well, yep. turn in your iPhone," and I'm like, "Yeah, because that's how this works." They're just like, "Go with," and which is hilarious too, because they tell me to go live in a teepee, and I'm like, "My people live in cabins. We were in log cabins too." Yeah. Why don't y'all go ahead and pay us all the rent that all these companies are on in America? Why don't y'all do that part? And then when it comes yeah. to cell phone thing, like, why don't you go ahead and how about you allow black folks to take out, you know, all the different, you know, precious metals that are in cell phones that even allow them to work, and then see where you get from that but right <laughs> right because that's the assumption that no yeah it's there the ratio no of our history valuable contribution to any of that technological development that came from anybody that wasn't white like yeah that's the just like indigenous folks like y'all don't have a history before 1492 and we don't have a history before 1619 we just happen to be just you know folks out there just running around just hoping to be enslaved or hoping to have our, our land taken or hoping to be killed. And you know what? You're just White setting their weight on a boat, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never mind the complex societies and civilizations that we've built. I mean, right. even even the idea of like the, the colonial home in America is not an it's not a, a European home. It's an indigenous home. Like the, none of these people know what a, a longhouse looks like or a wigwam or anything like that. And when they look at these, you know, they would swear up and down that like white folks had to have been the people that created these. But, you know, no, they weren't. You know, not at all. I mean, we talk about like, the indigenous societies of, of the Mississippians, or we talk about the Anasazis, or we talk about, you know, the Iroquois Federation, like even the foundations of this country, even just as a, in law does not come from the Greeks, does not come from, from Europe, it comes from, you know, the great law of peace. When we talk about like representation, when we talk about, 
you know, not having one person as like serving as like the central figurehead, but having a, a conglomerate of people around them that share these ideas. Like we don't get that from the, the, the Greek definition of democracy. We get it from indigenous folks here. But mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, they, they stole that. They stole that. And then, you know, stripped it of all the equitable stuff. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, in a lot of ways, like can't I can't blame yeah. being people. We can't have anybody that's not a wealthy white male landowner yeah and, and that's something that i try to teach you know a lot of my my white kids too when we read the declaration of independence and they talk about all men are created equal i go back and ask them like well what men are they talking about like because you have to take it at face value because if, if thomas jefferson wanted to say all people are created equal he was smart enough he, he had tons of degrees tons of wealth he could have said that if he wanted to but he said all men for a reason what men was he talking about oh he's talking about you know cisgendered rich land owning from england so i literally have my students who again majority are white ask them like how many y'all fit underneath you know that that exact qualification how many are cisgendered how many y'all are rich you know how many of y'all um how many how many of your parents are home adults like actually own you know the property not in the process of buying it but actually own it um you know how many y'all are, are, are christian and not atheists because that shit don't count either and it always and, and it doesn't fail that like i might get maybe one kid that can stand up and a couple of classes here and there, but they all look around and see that like basically none of them are standing up. So I'm like, even this document that we're reading that talks about all men created equal, like this wasn't even meant for most of you white folks. Like it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, class solidarity would have really helped in these moments, except again, I mean, rich white folks got to have, got a hold of the idea of, 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 you know, racializing folks. And, you know, for white folks, I understand it. Like for them, it was better off to be classified as white and maybe hopefully one day you know, get enough privilege to actually take advantage of that than it was for them to stand with black and brown and indigenous folks. And so I get it, but now we've got an opportunity to do better. And so I try to teach them from that standpoint. Well, and my concern is too, I mean, we, we know there's still a lot of white folks that still think that way, right? Like maybe I can move up in this oppressive system. But the older I get, the more I'm seeing so many um, people from different marginalized communities whose goal is to just move up in that power structure. And quite frankly, I don't, I don't want just the, the face of the oppressor to change. I want the system fucking gone. It's yeah. not going to make me feel better for the person standing on <laughs> stepping on my neck to be, you know, indigenous or black or whatever. Like I want the oppression gone. Yeah. And I don't know how we, like, how do we turn the tide on that? I, I suppose education, but. Yeah. And it's going to be a long, slow battle. And I've resigned myself to the idea that the progress that I would like to see probably isn't going to happen in my lifetime, but hopefully it happens in somebody else's. But hopefully they can look back to this time period and, and see that there were, you know, people out there still doing the fight and, um, you know, still trying to get things started. Um, and so even though I, I've, again, resigned myself to the idea that it's probably not going to happen in a meaningful way that I would be proud of, you know, moving forward in my life, that hopefully in, mm -hmm. in, other, in other generations, you know, it's, it's done. Um, and hopefully we do a better job of teaching these kids and what was done to us. And that's going to be the improvement that we'll be able to make. Um, and that's kind of where we go. I keep thinking back to like the medical like myths 
that you were talking about earlier because I, again, on TikTok because I have an addiction, I was watching um, some videos and like I had known some of this before, but it made me think of it again. Um, a lot of like medical practices were used on like when they were figuring out like childbirth and tools to help with that and like anesthesia and stuff like that. They practiced they practiced a lot of it on like black women, like the chainsaw that they they created that for like episiotomies and they used it on black women with no anesthesia didn't give them any painkillers or nothing because they wanted to see what the effects were and like uh what was it like the tuskegee that word hard for me um they used like those experiments to test what was it syphilis Mm -hmm. i think like Mm -hmm. all of these things that they've done just because they didn't believe that like black people or brown people were like equal like and it right it's just been like sitting on my brain for the last like 15 minutes and I, it's like, yeah it's a lot and i mean you know where the um you know the dietary recommendations that the government puts out you know and there's the 2000 calorie mm-hmm. recommended do you know where that comes from no that came out of the boarding schools. It was the amount that they could feed children without them starving to death. And they knew this because they killed a lot by not feeding them enough. Yeah. That's that's where the that's where that data came from that they then like stuff like this makes me so like I can't understand how people would be so nationalistic about a place that sucks so bad. <laughs> Because they think it's good. No. <laughs> that's the problem. I mean, that's really the problem. Um, anytime I find somebody who like can't even be critical about uh, about the country and, and how problematic uh, a significant portion of what the gov- yeah, government does, I, I honestly, I just shake my head and leave. Because as far as I'm concerned, like there is no way that you can be can buy the myth of, Mer- of American exceptionalism without also buying into the fact that black and brown people the fact I'm sorry not a fact the idea that black and brown people are less less human because really it's predicated on it the entire country was built on that idea it's a continuing problem I mean treatment of indigenous people still fall under the criteria for genocide for ongoing genocide according to UN um, we see all of the problems um, that existing in a black body is in America like you talked about earlier like all of these things are everyday issues so I don't think you can buy into American patriotism without seeing all of us as less than human Yep. So yes, I'm calling you all racist. <laughs> You're welcome. I agree. As a white person, I will stand by you. I'm oh. gonna get so many. I'm gonna get so many hate messages. <laughs> yeah, you are. I mean, it's okay. I'm used to it. It's fine. There was a video talking about how a lot of like beauty standards are inherently racist. Right. And a lot of it, like. I knew it, like, in the back of my mind, but it never had, like, come to the forward part, I guess, because of, like, the, like, the whiteness in my brain. I, I just never thought about it. But they were talking about how, like, all of these people, like, 
Kim, like the Kardashians got like BBLs to make like their butts look bigger and they got like boob jobs and all of this stuff. And they like, we're talking about how, um, I don't remember like what year it was, but like the, I don't, it was like the mammy stereotype, I guess is what it was called. Like the bigger black woman, like the mother type always had like the bigger bottom, like the bigger boobs and like a smaller waist. And it was characterized to be like that. And a lot of like black women were characterized to be like that. And then it became like a beauty standard because people decided it would be that way. But then black women were still hated for it <laughs> because they right. had Right. When white when white women make those surgical enhancements to yeah. get that, they're, you know, seen as desirable. But when black women have these features naturally, they're still criticized for them. And like now like the trends are like shifting to be more like K pop and like Asian beauty standards. Like people want to look like that. And now like the Kardashians are getting their BBLs reversed and getting their breasts. Oh, they are? See, I don't know. I, I am not up on Kardashian. I get on TikTok. <laughs> no, thank like, you. If that is what is awaiting me on TikTok, I no thank you. <laughs> I've learned so much on TikTok and like people make me think about things that I've never really like thought about, I guess, because like. I'm... I mean, that part is good, but it's the Kardashians I'd rather avoid. Like I have We're tried not... to avoid them as much as possible. I still blame OJ for this. If it was not for him that we would not know who the Kardashians are. I mean, so that was, I mean, yes, killing people was bad, but I'm telling you his real crime was introducing the world to the Kardashians. I like, I don't see the Kardashians specifically in my TikTok feed. It's just that video that came up because somebody was trying to make a point. Uh-huh, sure. I bet you're following all of them. I like the Kardashians. I kind of like- stalking Kim and Kanye right now. No. <laughs> I learned I'm so sorry. Much. I'll send you some links and we can put them oh. on. Oh, goody. Some good videos that have taught me things. But yeah, as, as to the point about European beauty standards, I mean, it's certainly not, it's certainly not those hair types that are quote unquote unprofessional. You know, yeah. things like that. Like, we see it even in that, you know, dress code. How, you know, how can you violate a dress code by your hair being exactly how it grows out of your head, right? Like, it's not even, that's not even rational. Yeah, I, yeah. Yep, it, it happens every day somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> All right. Are there any other issues that you want to discuss, Leo? No, I mean, the only thing I'll say that in like in celebrating Black History Month, like I hope people do a, um, take the effort to watch some some black television, watch some black movies, read some black books, read a black author um, and, and find some joy in doing that. Um, it doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. It doesn't all have to be oppression and overcoming stuff. But there are a lot of just great black creators out there. Carrie, like you were saying, even just on TikTok that are doing a lot of great and amazing things. And so just go out there and enjoy that. Do you have any author recommendations or like movie book recommendations? Um, I mean, authors, I mean, I, I really do love James Baldwin. He's my guy, Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks. Um, and, they, and they do a really great job of, of talking about love and, and, you know, 
education and you know the context of of this country as well. And so um, I would say them um, comic books. Like I always recommend Miles Morales as as you know that person to go ahead and, and take a look at and read um, his comic books and his books. Some of the ones that were done recently by Jason Reynolds are really really amazing. Um, TV shows. I mean, one of my favorite all-time TV shows is Living Single, which if people have not heard about that, you can imagine that it is that it is basically Friends except with Black folks in it. And as a matter of fact, like and actually funny. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and and really funny. Yes, and and actually, Friends like, was not that funny. Friends, yeah, and and Friends actually started up after Living Single. Like the idea mm -hmm. of Friends came from Living Single. Mm -hmm. um, so if people wanted to to watch shows like that, like I would say do so. I mean, Issa Rae does a lot of great stuff with Insecure. Um, a lot of great shows are streaming on on different platforms, and just go ahead and check them out. Um, you can have a, there's a lot of shows out there that just show black folks being black, and um, that's a good thing because we need it. Yes, sounds good. Thank you for the recommendations because I'm always looking for new stuff and ways to support. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to make sure you don't miss any of the uploads, be sure to turn on those notifications so you uh, you will know as soon as those go up. Um, also, like us on social media at Hapoxia Podcast, or uh, the easiest way is to go to our website, hapoxia.com. That's H-O-P-O-K-S-I-A.com. And the links to all the socials and all the podcast feeds are right there. And we just want to thank you all for sharing your time with us, hanging out with us, and we hope to um, spend more time with you in the future.